Because God is just, justice will always be done, if not in this life, then in the life to come. We, as God's people, need to remember that because the injustice of this world can make you crazy. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to uh, Daniel 6. Uh, We're going to continue. I'm a new grandpa again, so pray for me. It's um, pretty remarkable. I had absolutely nothing to do with any of it. People say congratulations, and you go, for what? You know, I mean, we all you grandparents, you already paid your dues. Now this is payback, right? I mean, this this is payday, I guess, is what it is. Someone told me that if they could uh, be a grandparent first, they never would be have been a parent. You know what I mean? But somebody's got to do the parenting, so you get to do the grandparenting. I mean, that's the deal. Anyway, Daniel 6. We're in a study of Daniel about halfway through, Lord willing. The period of Daniel covers a historical era from about 605 B.C., 600 years before Christ, to about 535. So about a 70-year span of period is the book of Daniel. Daniel was captured in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar about 605 And taken to Babylon, he served in the very highest of government positions in a pagan empire for more than 70 years. We don't know exactly how long he lived, but it's probably pretty close to 100 years old. So last week, we took a look at Daniel 5, which was the fall of the Babylonian empire by the Medes and the Persians. And as you recall, they were having a party, and they neglected to man the defenses, if you will. And the city fell overnight without a fight. And that night was October 12th. 539 B.C. I want you to know that Daniel 6 takes place probably within a year after that. So Daniel 6 takes place about 538 B.C. And that year is really, really significant because that was the year King Cyrus issued a decree that the Jews in captivity, who had spent 70 years in captivity because of their disobedience, could go back to Jerusalem, go back to the land, and rebuild the temple. Now, it's interesting that Scripture says that the Holy Spirit, God stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus to do that. What it doesn't say, but it's probably likely that Daniel helped write the decree to send the Jews back to Israel. Now, we think Daniel was born probably about 620 B.C. When this chapter takes place, he's about 82 or 83. Now, most of us would think, well, when you're 82 or 83, it's way past time to retire from government service, right? It probably is, but you never retire from kingdom service. Interesting, to give you all some hope, William Gladstone became prime minister of Great Britain for the fourth time when he was 83. Michelangelo was 89 when he painted his last judgment on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and spent most of the time laying on his back on a scaffold to paint on the ceiling at 89. So don't complain about mowing your lawn, right? (laughs) John Wesley actively traveled and preached until 88, and they didn't have the Concord back in the day. Edison was still inventing at age 90. Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, was creative at 90, as was Bernard Shaw, the British playwright. J.C. Penney was hard at work at his desk at age 95. Now, we're all going to age, and there's nothing we can do about that, but none of us should rust out in a recliner and die of boredom watching reruns. We should wear out. I've got a motto. I want to die with my boots on. And you should die with your boots on in the service of Jesus Christ the King. And that's what Daniel's doing. Let's pick up the narrative, Daniel 6, chapter 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, 
that these satraps might be accountable to him that the king might not suffer loss. Now, the name Darius is not a, it's not a proper name like John or George. It's a title. It means like Pharaoh or Caesar, so it's a title. And we're really not sure who Darius is. There's actually three different commentaries on this guy's life. He may have been Camzius, which is the son of Cyrus, the Persian who conquered. Might have been Cyrus himself. Some scholars believe that it was a governor under Cyrus named Guberu who seized Babylon and was viceroy over the region. Many, many people think it's actually Cyrus himself because it's a title, but if you look at Daniel 5.31 and Daniel 6.28, seems like they're two different people, Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede. So the Median Persian Empire is quite large. They conquered quite a lot of territory in addition to the kingdom of Babylon, which they conquered about a year ago on October 12th. So the kingdom of Medo-Persia encompassed modern-day Turkey, Egypt, Parts of India, North Africa, as well as Babylonia. It's a very, very large, significant chunk of real estate. And Darius recognized that the government, in order to be more effective, had to be reorganized to administer this larger territory. This term, satrap, it's an it's a ancient term, and it literally means protector of the realm. We would say public servant. Now, that should not be an oxymoron, right? You should be a public servant means you're elected in order to serve the public. Satrap meant you were supposed to protect the realm. What they were, they were provincial governors. And this region was so large that the king had divided into 120 administrative districts, like states or we would say counties, right? Administrative districts. And these satraps were provincial governors and they were responsible for a a particular realm, a particular geographic area. And it's interesting that the text notes that Darius was motivated to restructure the government because there was a lot of governmental theft going on. It doesn't that just shock you that people would actually steal from the government, right? Governmental revenue, governmental property was being ripped off and the government uh, needed to be restructured to, uh, to reduce graft and corruption. So Darius appoints these provincial governors, and three commissioners are presidents, if you will, and they're supposed to hold these governors fiscally accountable, which means you have to turn in an honest set of books. What's going on with tax revenue, and is the king getting their fair share, or is it being siphoned off for, you know, bridges to nowhere? So Daniel is the first of these three presidents, so he's the first among equals, and obviously Darius must have heard pretty excellent reports about this guy's outstanding integrity and competency because verse 3 tells us, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Prime Minister. Verse 4. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch that he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Here's the principle. God is honored when his people are faithful and produce excellent work. Now, you could just invert that. God is dishonored when his people are flaky and produce substandard work. God's people should be superior performers in any arena that they are involved in because we bear the name of Jesus Christ and God doesn't do shoddy work. Now, the overarching description term here is faithful. Faithful means absolutely honest, utterly dependable, and completely loyal. So Daniel was faithful. He was completely honest, utterly dependable, and totally loyal. Excellent and faithful work reveals to the world the kind of God we serve. And that's why Christians should produce absolutely excellent work. Now, Daniel had a reputation throughout the empire 
for competency and character, which made him very promotable. Remember, he had served as Nebuchadnezzar's prime minister for decades, so he had vast experience. He understood the history of the empire. He understood he had tremendous leadership abilities, and most importantly, God gifted him with wisdom. So his attitudes and actions were so effective that in very short order, the king said, I want you to be prime minister, which means you are the chief executive officer for this empire. And this was a large empire, and Daniel's probably 83. Kind of reminds you of Winston Churchill that got elected PM of Great Britain when he was 65. So those of you that think sliding for home is acceptable because you're 65, get over it. You might be at the very apex of your productive period in life from God's perspective. Matter of fact, I firmly believe that everybody in this room, your best days are ahead of you. That God has allowed you to experience everything you've experienced at this point in time so you can make the most contribution of the rest of your life now. Does that make sense? If you feel a pitchfork tickling your spinal cord, it's intentional. Right? So, Daniel's promotable, but honesty and integrity threaten people that are dishonest. You probably noticed that in our culture. It seems that the corruption that Darius was concerned about was graft and corruption among the governors. I'm astonished that these people would be corrupt. Because when they heard about Daniel's planned promotion, they looked for ways to destroy him. See, one of the price tags of integrity and moral honesty is that you attract the attention of envious people who are jealous of your success. So Daniel's in his 80s, and these younger governors probably resented, number one, an older man, and number two, a Jew, so there's certainly anti-Semitism at work, and number three, a captive, right, he's in exile, supervising their work. So they were jealous of his success, number one, but number two, they were frightened of his scrutiny. If they were ripping off the king and he was appointed to clean up the corruption and graft and do a forensic audit of the books and find out where actually the money was going, they could lose their positions and they could lose their heads. Because in that era, you didn't just get a slap on the wrist. They took your head right off. Actually, they fed you to the lines, which we're going to find out about. So they had to destroy Daniel for lots of reasons. However, and this is a testimony, when they investigated his actions, and believe me, they did a thorough job of investigating, they couldn't find one thing to accuse him of. There was no negligence, no error, no corruption. Negligence, by the way, is the sin of omission. You fail to do what you should have done. That's neglect. You neglected what you should have done. And it also says there was no corruption or no fault. Now, corruption is the sin of commission, doing something you shouldn't have done. So they investigated this guy, and they, he, they found out that he did everything he should have done, and he didn't do anything he should not have done. Now, when your enemies investigate your life looking for ways to thrash and trash and discredit you, and they can't find anything. Now, that's a phenomenal testimony. We should carry that as, a, as an example for us at this point in time. So they knew that the only arena that they could get him was a spiritual one. They knew he was committed to Jesus Christ, well, to God. Jesus, he didn't know about Jesus. They were plotted to destroy him through political disloyalty and law-breaking. In order to do that, in order to convict him of breaking a law, they first had to pass a law. And they had to pass a law forbidding anyone to worship God. Does this sound, the heat kind of going up looking at our culture today? By the way, this strategy had worked before with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember? The king said, the law of the land is, because I am the law, you will worship my golden statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, forget about it, you can burn us, it doesn't matter, we're not bowing, we're not bending, and by the way, we're not going to burn either, which they were rescued from that. So Daniel and his four friends, they refused to worship a human king because they're worshiping the king of kings. They're not going to commit idolatry. Verse 6, here's how the plot thickens. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement... 
They were conspiracy theorists. To the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. So they come together and they petition the king and they say, you need to pass a law to make it illegal to pray or to make any religious position to any god or man except for you. So you are the only object of prayer and petition for the next 30 days upon penalty of death. Does that sound reasonable just on the face of it? There's a lot of legislation that doesn't sound reasonable just on the face of it. This would be a poster child for that. But it was designed to flatter the king's ego. Everybody pray to me for 30 days. I always thought I was special. Now this is proof that I'm really special, right? By the way, flattery says to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. That's flattery. Gossip says behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. Both of them are sins. So these conspirators, they come to the king and they say, everybody agrees with us. All the government officials, the governors, the county board of supervisors, the local dog catchers, we got everybody, they all agree that you should be the object of worship for 30 days. Of course, that was a patent lie because who had they not consulted about this? Daniel was not part of this group, right? Interesting side note is the author here, Daniel, makes it very clear that the law of the Medes and Persians, once enacted, could not be binding. They couldn't, I'm sorry, they were binding, they could not be changed, which means even the king could not change the law. And they did that on purpose. It served to limit the power of rulers, right? Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a lot more authority than Darius did. Nebuchadnezzar was the law. He didn't live above the law. He was the law. If he said, you're going to die, you die. You're going to live, you live. You get promoted, you get promoted. You don't get promoted, you don't get promoted. So he could kill whoever he chose, and he did. So the Persians, they wanted to prevent their rulers from enacting a whimsical law that they might not have thought through, right? And it might have unexpected consequences. So they said, once the law is established, it can't be changed, which served to limit the foolishness, so they thought, of their government rulers. Which is really ironic, because this law is the poster child example for a law that had not been thought through and that had consequences they hadn't thought about, right? So think about it this way. Darius is the ruler of this realm. He's been on the job for less than a year, and he wants to unify the government behind him. All king's leaders want unity behind him. And he liked the idea of a pledge of loyalty to himself. His ego was flattered, and it said he signed the injunction into law, apparently without a great deal of thought, consultation, discussion, debate, or whatever. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men, the conspirators, came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? That would be called a leading 
question? The king answered, the statement is true, according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, king, or to the injunction which you have signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Here's the principle. Valuing God above all means obeying God's law, even if that means disobeying man's law and suffering as a result. Valuing God above all means obeying God's law, even if that means disobeying man's law and suffering as a result. Someone once said, a lot of crimes are not sins. And a lot of sins are not crimes. Crime is defined by man's law. Crime is defined by human government. Sin is defined by God's law. Sin is defined by God's government. Now, Daniel's a righteous man, and he's convicted now of a crime that is not a sin. The Persian government made it a crime to pray to God. But it was certainly not a sin to pray to God right? Daniel committed the crime of praying to God because he refused to commit the sin of not praying to God. You understand where I'm going with this? Crimes are defined by humans. Sins are defined by God. If you're going to break something, break man's law and keep God's law, not the other way around. Better break man's law and be guilty of a crime than break God's law and be guilty of a sin. Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, refused to pray to the king because that's idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image, and so on and so forth. And obviously that was forbidden by God as a sin. So the secret of Daniel's success, and by the way, the secret of his courage, is found right here. It was constant communion with God himself. Jesus, in John 14, called this constant communion abiding. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember we talked about the grapevine and the branches that are attached to the grapevine? And we said, if you look at a grapevine and it produces fruit, it's proof that the grapevine, the branch, is connected to the vine, which is the source of life. And we can't produce any spiritual fruit unless we stay connected to the vine, and Jesus Christ is the vine. And Daniel stayed in constant communication three times a day with God, come rain or shine, regardless, and that's what, number one, kept him from being corrupted by the pagan culture he was part of, and it also gave him the courage to withstand uh, against this opposition. So he had a habit of praying three times a day. It's a pretty good habit. And he had specific times set, preset, where he had an appointment with God. And he wasn't going to stop praying just because the government called it a crime. Now, in that era, most roofs were flat, and they had usually a small chamber on top of that roof. It was a little, kind of an open-air upper room. It was open to the breeze, and they might put a frame of latticework to let the breeze through because they obviously didn't have glass window panes at that point. And a lot of people slept up there because it was cooler. I don't know if you've ever been to anywhere near Babylon, but it's modern-day Iraq, and it gets hot in the Middle East. So a lot of people slept on those flat upper roofs, and that's where he went up to pray three times a day. It sounds like morning, noon, and night. When Daniel heard that prayer to anybody but Darius was forbidden, and he knew that if he did, he was going to die, what did he do? The same thing he'd always done. That's why habits are so important. Because they carry you through when it's not convenient. It's been well said, those who have no regular habits of prayer seldom do much praying. If you don't have a time every day to work out physically, I can guarantee you probably won't work out. If you don't have a, a, a set-aside time every day when you habitually open the Bible and pray, you probably won't open the Bible and pray. It has to be important enough to impact your schedule. 
or it's not going to change your life. Anything that's important will impact your schedule. And guess what? We always make time for what's important to us. I can tell you what your priorities are. Just show me how you spend your time and how you spend your money, and I know where your heart is. And God knows better, right? So it's interesting that Daniel didn't compromise, even though he easily could have done so. I mean, think about it. If you pray publicly, you're going to die. So what would have been the easiest thing to do? Well, why don't we just close the lattices so nobody can see? You know, like the shades, just close the shades. Pray, but no one can look. Um, how about we just leave the city for 30 days? You know, it's 30 days. I'll just get out of Dodge for 30 days, and I'll still pray. How about, um, God, you will understand if I disappear for, for a month. Most of us disappear from God without this much provocation, right? I mean, how many times do we miss our time with the Lord, be, not because we're going to die, but because there's something that is more attractive that grabs our attention. And all of those strategies reflect an unbelief in God's power and His promises. Daniel believed God's word. Jeremiah 32, God says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, and by your outstretched arms, nothing is too difficult for you. And John Biller introduced me to this song 30-some years ago back in the day. There's a, some beautiful music written about this. So Daniel's loyalty to God was more important than his loyalty to the king. And, and, and we call that devoted. Daniel was devoted to God. Now, devoted means committed. Devoted means loyal. Devoted means steadfast. Devoted means faithful. I assume you're devoted to your spouse. I assume, maybe with not so much conviction, you're devoted to your children. I know you're devoted to your grandchildren, right? So devotion to God is staying connected with God every day through his word, prayer, and obedience. And Daniel had done that for decades and decades and decades. He's now 83 years old. He's been doing this since he was 15, we know. So God gave him wisdom and courage to follow God regardless of opposition. So Daniel's, quote, colleagues come together and they observe him praying. And of course, then they run to the king. And they tell Darius, by the way, that Daniel, one of those captive exiles that you appointed over us local natives, he's ignored your injunction and the laws of the land. He's just another slave, right? Although he's outranked them for decades. So there's some, certainly some jealousy here. So they construe prayer as disrespect for the king instead of construing prayer as respect for Almighty God, which is the correct response. Verse 14 tells you what the king's response was. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute with the king's established may be changed. Here's the principle, and this is really practical. Making rash commitments can enslave you and harm others. So be careful and prayerful before making promises. Making rash commitments can enslave you and harm others. So be careful and prayerful before making promises. I'm going to say something off the, well, it won't be off the record because it's taped, but it will, I haven't prepared it. Most of us should probably say no more often. When we say no... It's because we've already said yes to something more important. If we haven't said yes to what's important, then we have no idea what to say yes or no to. But if you said yes, one of the things that is my conviction after many decades on this planet, there are very few things you can do well. A handful. And once you're clear on what God's called you to do, 
everything else is a distraction and could be disobedience. Most of us need to say yes to the very few things that we know God's calling us to do and say no to virtually everything else. We would be far more effective than fiddling our time, dabbling with A, B, C, D, E through Z. Most of it does not fulfill God's will, even good things, which presupposes you're clear on what God's called you to do. Well, I got a solution for that. You pray about it three times a day like Daniel, you'll find out, right? Okay. So the king has now figured out that he's trapped, and he's trapped by his own hand. He's the one that signed the injunction. And he's angry at himself that he got signed into putting a decree in place that's going to destroy the one man in the empire who he trusted and needed more than anybody else. And it seems as though, when you read the text, he spent the rest of the day looking for some kind of legal loophole that he could get out of this and get an exemption for Daniel. Apparently, he was quite fond of Daniel. It's pretty clear right now that he understands that these governors are corrupt to the core and are willing to have him murder an innocent man in order to fulfill their will. So at sunset, these conspirators come and they say, Remember, you're under the law too. No law can be changed. You've got to throw them to the lions. Verse 16. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of the nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Lion hunting was the sport of kings. Assyrian kings in particular prided themselves on being lion slayers. Now, understand that the Babylonians, as we talked about a few weeks ago, they had burned their criminals in the fire, in brick kilns. You were an enemy of the state, they roasted you. The Persians worshipped fire. They would never do that. They executed their prisoners by feeding them to the lions. So they kept a pretty significant den of lions to execute people who were enemies of the state. I can only imagine that the terror of being thrown to lions would keep most people in line, right? Now, by the way, that's not new. Governments have always used fear and terror to keep people in line and compliant with what they want you to do, blah, blah, don't get me started, right? (laughs) So this lion's den is probably a man-made structure. It's probably not a cave. You know, when you see pictures of a lion's den, they always show you this cave. Well, guess what? Babylon's built on desert ground, and there's not exactly a lot of mountains or caves nearby. And the word for den here is related to the Hebrew word meaning to dig. So it probably refers to an underground pit. Now, to make this work, you, have, you dig the pit, you cover it over, and you need two openings. You need an opening at the top to drop food in, including living food called enemies of the state. And then you need to dig a ramp down below to bring lions in or out, because sometimes they would die, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that lower opening, of course, is what they rolled a heavy stone in front of to seal it. And, of course, then they took the stone and they brought hot wax on the stone And the king had an insignia ring, right, with an insignia. And you had the hot wax, and they'd put the ring on there to seal it. And that meant nobody touches this seal, breaks it, moves this stone under penalty of death. Kind of reminds you of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was sealed in the tomb with a heavy stone, and the Roman seal was put on it. No one touched it under penalty of death, and they posted a guard, etc., etc., What this demonstrates is that there was no human that was available to rescue Daniel, right? Only God could rescue him. So he's thrown into the lion's den, and there's a lot of people watching. All these 120 enemies of his are watching thrown into the lion's den. So there's a lot of eyewitness collaboration about what's going to happen. And the king expresses his faith that God would deliver him. And I want you to notice why. He says, your God, whom you, what? 
constantly serve, how would you like that on your gravestone? You don't serve God intermittently. You serve God constantly. His faithfulness was known throughout the realm. He constantly served God, which is a powerful testimony. It's also interesting that do you hear Daniel say anything? Not a word. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't argue for an exception. He doesn't attack the laws unjust. Who else was silent when he was accused? Jesus Christ, right? So Daniel has done what was right in God's eyes. And he's trusting that God will do what is right for him, even if that means death. So he is at peace. He doesn't have to defend his own life by arguing God will defend. You know, you can defend yourself against attack. God will let you open your mouth and do that. I would suggest that you let him defend you. He'll do a much better job. And your ego won't get you in trouble. So when you're attacked for doing right, Turn it over to the Lord, let him defend you. He will make things come out right at the end. And Daniel has that faith, and he keeps his mouth shut. And Because his faith is not in human government, his faith is in the sovereign government of God. Now, the king is obviously pretty upset. He goes back to the palace, no entertainment, could not sleep. He obviously feels a great deal of guilt over being trapped into uh, condemning and executing a competent, loyal, and innocent friend to death. Since he, we'll find out later, he believes in the God of Daniel, I imagine that he's praying. Of course, I also think he's plotting revenge, which we're going to find out. Verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions. Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also innocent toward you, O king. I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Verse 24. Then the king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. By the way, a lion will kill you. They just kind of get a hold of you. and they. If, if a leopard gets a hold of you, they'll cut a few sirloins off you. If a lion gets a hold of you, it only takes one bite, and brother, your troubles are over in this life anyway. Okay. Principle, because God is just, justice will always be done. If not in this life, then in the life to come. Because God is just, justice will always be done. If not in this life, then in the life to come. We, as God's people, need to remember that because the injustice of this world can make you crazy. And Christians are always in trouble trying to take matters in their own hands. I'm going to impose justice. I'm going to right this wrong. I'm going to go clean house. And 99.9999% of the time, that is the flesh, and it does not accomplish the will of God. And we do it because we forget that God is sovereign and he will bring justice. If you want to be reminded, go read Revelation 20 about the great white throne and you will be convinced that God will bring justice. Now let's think about this. If Daniel was thrown in the lion's den at sunset, he's probably been with the lions for at least 8 to 10 hours by daylight, right? So when the king asked, has God been able to deliver him? God says, God sent his angel. Daniel said, God sent his angel. Shut the lion's mouth. I wonder... If this was the same angel that came into the fiery furnace and rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, your little brain works and go, I wonder if the angel said, Daniel, yeah, your friends knew me. I don't know. May have been the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the angel of the Lord, right? 
There's no record of any conversation between the angel and Daniel, although it would be fascinating, right? We don't know if Daniel slept. We don't know if the lion slept. We don't know if they turned into putty cats and Daniel used one of them for a pillow. I mean, we don't know. They might have roared all night and the angel just kept him away from Daniel. We don't know, but it's obvious that Daniel knew that God sent an angel, so he probably saw the angel. And the alliance obviously saw the angel too and didn't come near Daniel. So Daniel reassures the king, God preserved his life because I'm innocent of any crime. It's interesting that Daniel valued God more than his life. And God chose to spare his life. It's also important to understand that God would have been perfectly just if he had used the lions and taken Daniel to heaven that night. God would have been equally just because he's sovereign. He knows when our time is to go home. So Daniel was pulled up out of the den, probably with ropes. They dropped ropes in, pulled him up, and then Daniel did some, and then Darius did some housekeeping because he knew the character of the rest of these governors that they were willing to sacrifice and execute an innocent man to keep their graft and corruption from being exposed, and they got what we call poetic justice, right? So if you take roughly 120 governors or some percentage of that and their families, there was probably between three and 500 people that were tossed into this den at any one time. Now from the lions, I mean, that is protein. That's a good deal, right? It says they crushed their bones before they hit the bottom of the den, which tells you two or three things. Number one, these lions were not old. They were not toothless. They were not crippled. They were hungry, and there was a lot of them. Right? They used these dens as execution chambers for enemies of the state. Clearly, these people now demonstrate they're enemies of the state. So in light of this supernatural intervention, Darius now gives his public testimony. Look at verse 25. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who are living in all the land, quote, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom... Men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Before the God of Daniel. Think about that. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Here's the principle. God performs miracles so that people will know him and worship him. God performs miracles so that people will know and worship him. That's the whole point of rescuing Daniel from the lion's den. See, most of the time we just look at this from a horizontal standpoint. Daniel was faithful. God loved Daniel. God saved his life. That's only the horizontal perspective. This is not about Daniel. This is about the exaltation of God through the conversion of Darius and the proclamation of the one true God to the whole Persian Empire. He wrote this letter to the entire Persian Empire about the God of Daniel. So to make God known to the nations, God sends Daniel and his friends into pagan Gentile Babylon 70 years earlier as slaves. God has a plan to reach the Babylonian Empire, and now the Persian Empire, how does he do it? He does it through his people. And he sends Daniel and three friends into this empire for evangelistic reasons, and he sends them as slaves. And he sends Paul to Rome as a prisoner. And God put Joseph and Esther and Nehemiah in positions in pagan governments, to what? Make his name known and facilitate his plans for world evangelism. So God gives Daniel, I'm going back now, Daniel 1, he gives him great wisdom, and he puts them in situations where they can represent him to the nations. Think about it. God used Daniel on more than one occasion to speak for God. God used Daniel to interpret dreams. He used Joseph to interpret dreams. To who? Pagan Kings, right? 
Daniel's three friends demonstrate the character and the power of God when they refuse to bow down to the statue and they get thrown into uh, the fiery furnace. God uses Daniel to confront Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and call them to repent. God elevates Daniel to the position of prime minister in two empires because he wants his name and character to be known to lost people. And Daniel's witness to Nebuchadnezzar leads to Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. God uses Daniel to influence Cyrus to release the Jews to go back into their homeland after 70 years, and he probably helps them write the decree. And now God allows Daniel to be persecuted by evil people. He allows the king to be fooled by his governors. He allows his faithful servant who's over 80 to be tossed into a lion's den with every expectation of being eaten, right? And Daniel's faith in the sovereignty and the love of God for him is a tremendous impression on Darius. And God rescues Daniel in order to reveal himself to the king. So the king can proclaim the supremacy of Yahweh to the empire. Now, when you read this last three or four verses, this chapter, this sounds very familiar to the last few verses of chapter 4. Both Nebuchadnezzar and Darius acknowledge the supremacy and sovereignty of the God of Israel as the one true God. Darius calls Yahweh the living God, who rules over an eternal kingdom, Obviously, he does supernatural miracles. He dwells in heaven, but he does wonders on earth and delivers those who trust in him. I've often wondered whether this lion's den experience and the supernatural deliverance occurred before the decree of Cyrus to free the Jews. And whether this obviously supernatural intervention the news of it made its way from Babylon throughout the empire, and Cyrus took note of that. I can't prove that. I don't know that. But it's absolutely interesting that God does nothing by accident. Everything the Lord does by purpose. So when you read these first six chapters, because we're going to do a major shift next week, we're moving to the prophetic section, the first six chapters we've been in are historical. And they're far more than stories. If you read the first six chapters of Daniel, the chapters all end the same way. They exalt the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of glory, the Most High God, who does supernatural things in order to reveal himself. And you say, well, what's that got to do with us? Well, God wants to reach this world for him. This world is lost. You don't have to go very far to see this place disintegrating, right? It's pretty obvious that the world is not making good decisions apart from God. Of course, they won't. But Jesus Christ wants to reach this world, and he's going to reach this world through you. And he has sovereignly put you in the positions you're in right now, whatever it happens to be. He's given you your skills. He's given you your knowledge. He's given you your family structure. He's given you your friends your neighbors, your workplace, your acquaintances, all those relationships are given to you, designed to you, because those people, some of them, Jesus wants in heaven. And he died for them. And he's placed you there in the same way he placed Daniel in Babylon and in Persia to reach the lost. And I think many of us probably don't understand God's eternal purpose in everything that happens in our life. There is absolutely nothing in your life that happens that is not allowed and designed by God for eternal purposes. And we fail to remember that. Most of the time we go, God, don't you know, I mean, you dropped me three stories down into a lion's den, and I'm going to be eaten, and this is not fair. You should, oh, you have an eternal reason behind all that. Yeah. So everything that happens in your life, everything that happens in your family's life, with your health, with your finances, with your friends, with your kids, God has purpose behind all that. And we are to represent him in those relationships, and he will give you the wisdom and the courage and the integrity and whatever you need to represent him well in exactly the same way that he did for Daniel. That's really the story of these first six chapters. 
God has purpose for us to reach a lost world. Okay, let's summarize and then we'll do prayer and praise. First, God is honored when his people are faithful and produce excellent work. Don't turn in sloppy work. Whatever you do, do it with all your might because you work for the Lord, not for humanity. Number two, valuing God above all means obeying God's law, even if that means disobeying man's law and suffering for it. Thus far in our culture, we haven't had to do that. The culture's pretty well agreed with the Bible, at least for the first 200 years, but the last several decades, those are diverging. Many, many Christians are going to have some decisions to make here in the next few decades, but actually the next few weeks. Number three, making rash commitments can ensnare you and harm others, so be careful and prayerful before making promises. Say no more than you say yes. Just make sure you say yes to the right things first, and then say no to the things that take you away from those things. Number four, since God is just, justice will always be done. If not in this life, then in the life to come. That should give us peace in the middle of a crazy culture, right? And lastly, God performs miracles so that people will know him and worship him. God enough to think about? God enough to obey? I love you. Never forget that. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.